And welcome to the Ashley Webster Experience. Our guest today is the very esteemed John Layfield. Uh, John, welcome. Um, to tell our listeners, uh, you've had a very um, interesting life up to now. You say, oh, I don't know about that, but you have. <laughs> you started off, uh, you were born in Texas. We were just saying Sweetwater, Texas. And in true Texas style, you're a big guy. What were you, 6'6"? Six, 6'6". Six? Six, six. I was very skinny in high school, about 190 pounds. I ballooned in college to up to about 280, But the football coach took one look at you and said, all right, buddy, let's see what you got, right? So you, you start in high school. You start in college. Where did you go to college? Abilene Christian, a little small school that was yep. right near uh, Sweetwater where I grew up. Uh, 1976, Ova Johansson kicked a 69-yard field goal on homecoming day. <laughs> oh, longest wow. ever. And I was there that day. Wilbur Montgomery, the great all-pro running back from Philadelphia Eagles, broke mm. the college rushing record that day. And I was just a kid, 1976. What's in the water I was, down there? That's I, I don't know. Uh, and I, just it blew me away. And so I, I had no choice but to go to Abilene Christian after that. Should have gone to University of Texas. Should have gone uh, somewhere else. But that was where I wanted to go, and I'm glad I did. And I, I read that you got drafted by the L.A. Raiders, right? I did, yes. Did you ever get a chance to play for them? Never got a chance to play. Uh, I was on the team. We had three All-Pros. Uh, that was the year Bo Jackson got hurt. Probably oh, yeah. Gone, probably would have gone to the Super Bowl if Bo hadn't got hurt. Uh, I don't think we'd have beat the 49ers, but... Would have gone to the Super Bowl. Then played two years in the World Football League. Jason Garrett actually uh, played in San Antonio for Mike Riley, yeah. who later coached at Nebraska and Oregon. Jason Garrett, the coach of the Cowboys, was our quarterback. And what position did you play? Offensive tackle. A tough guy. I don't know about did that. you love it? Did you love ah, it? I loved every bit of it. Yes. Yeah. The trenches. If I if I hadn't gotten hurt and could play longer, I'd have played ten or twelve years. How did you if get I hurt? Uh, had several knee surgeries, a broken leg, oh. two broken legs in college. Oh my god. A lot, lot of injuries. I just got, I got very That's a lot of pain medication. The fact that you can come back from two broken legs is unheard of. <laughs> well, I broke my femur my freshman year, tore every ligament, and then came back the next year, probably a little bit too early, broke the fibula in my lower leg the ninth game of my senior season, playing against John Randall, who's in the Hall of Fame of the Minnesota Vikings, and I played the rest of the game on the broken leg and gave up one sack, the only sack I gave up that year to John Randall. And oh my I God. saw John uh, years later. He's yeah. a big WWE fan, loves Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah. And I said, hey, I played against you. If you remember, he goes, yeah, you tried to play against me on a broken leg. He goes, I, he, <laughs> he said, remembered. I, he remembered. He said, and I have the picture in my living room <laughs> of me turning the corner on you getting the sack. Oh. <laughs> so I now hate, I now hate him. But I want to get back to the Raiders, no, Raiders if I can, because uh, I, I lived in L.A. for a while when the Raiders were playing there. It was a terrible year. They were playing at the Coliseum. Um, but they always had this aura about them. They were a mean, nasty bunch. Al Davis, just win, baby. Uh, what was the franchise like? It was awesome. Uh, Al Davis was a great owner. Yeah. Al Davis, uh, people compare Al Davis to Jerry Jones. That's not fair to Al Davis. Al huh. Davis was a professional coach when he was younger. You know, Jerry right. Jones was a football player. He knows the game, but not to the level that Al Davis knew it. Al Davis would get out there and coach linebackers. He'd go over steps. He was just, he was a player's coach. Yeah. We were sitting out there one day, we're going over our playbook at the at the pool, and we see Al Davis, we kind of put our beers aside. And he, had, <laughs> he, had, he had ordered us a keg of beer. Yeah. Uh, you know, just kind of. He's kinda, a good man. That's right. Yeah, he was, he, every, Everybody loved Al Davis. So you have all of these injuries, broken legs and God knows what else. And then, of course, you go into professional wrestling. I didn't want to work. I, <laughs> I spent my whole life trying to stay out of how work. Did that, how did that happen? Let's, let's, get, let's go back to the beginning. You had your football career. Unfortunately, you were suffering from injuries and, and what have you. You played two years in, in the, what was it? The in the World League. World, World League. League of American Football. Yeah. And then that finishes. And then you say to yourself, hmm, what am I going to do now? 
all I've done is sports. How does wrestling come into the picture? I coached one year when I was at uh, in the World League, and that was kind of what I thought I would do, but I'd always wanted to be a wrestler. I grew up watching wrestling. One of my youngest memories was watching wrestling with my grandfather in Sweetwater, Texas, the Von Erichs and the Funks out of Dallas, the Sportatorium. Uh, it's a world-famous uh, arena if you're from yeah. the South. And I, I, I'd met a guy who had wrestled in Japan, and I, and I thought, I'm still young enough to do this. And yeah. I wanted to give it a chance. I was hoping to play football for 10, 12 years and then retire and probably coach. But I thought, this is a chance to do something I want to do. So, What was it about wrestling that appealed to you so much? I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the showmanship. I loved the wrestling. I loved the characters. It was just something I grew up with. You know, back then yeah. you didn't have ESPN, didn't have all the channels and so we had the Dallas Cowboys, and we had wrestling. And that, that was it. That was it. So <laughs> and, my two choices were I want to be a wrestler and a, and a professional football player. And back then, you know, wrestling was different from what we have now. It's this huge company that you see these huge shows, and people that might be wrestling from California New York, everyone knows them internationally. But back then, right, you had your local wrestlers, your local stars, correct? Yeah, it was before, say, USA Network took over first, and then TNT took over the first uh, syndicated cable television across the United States. So – by default, unless you were on one of the three main channels, which very few things were back then, mm. you were a regional territory. And so you had all these territories. You had four or five in, in Texas. You had the Funks in Amarillo. You had Gory Guerrero down in El Paso. You had Blanchard in San Antonio, uh, Paul Bosch down in Houston, and Fritz von Erich up in Dallas. And and all five of those were very profitable territories that didn't encroach upon the other guy. Mm. So their TV would just go uh. to one part the next wrestling territory would take over. So it's like rooting for your hometown team. It's like rooting yeah. for the Dallas Cowboys. That's like rooting for your hometown wrestler. That's, that's right. cool. So how did you come up with your character? Because that's the key to a lot of this. Is you was you, you take on this, you know, you, you this kind of character and what the person wears, the way they act. You're either a good guy or a bad guy. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I, when I first started, I trained with Brad Rangens up in Minnesota, mm. 1980 Greco-Roman world champion. Mm. Probably would have won the gold medals. That was the year that they boycotted because of the Russians and uh, robbed a bunch of guys of winning gold medals mm. uh, in the United States. I went to Japan and wrestled for almost a year, moved to Europe and wrestled for Otto Vonts, uh, mm -hmm. childhood uh, buddy of Arnold Schwarzenegger and from Graz, Austria. Uh, Peter Villam, a former Nazi youth. Uh, oh it what was a, quite an experience. <laughs> Worked for the mafia in Japan. And, as you uh, do. As you do, yeah. <laughs> the Yakuza and uh, the mafia down in uh, Mexico. So it was uh, quite, quite <laughs> so the you, experience. So you're doing this around the world. I mean, you, I didn't realize that wrestling was big in Japan. I, I think sumo wrestling, but I don't was, think... Yeah, it was huge in Japan. Absolutely huge. It was the only place I could make any money. I was a big young kid, and they yeah. liked the big young football players. Stan Hansen was a legend over there at that time, Bruiser Brody, and they loved the big Americans that were real rough and tough to come over, and that's so I was able to make a living in Japan where I couldn't in the United States. What was the, the crowd like? You know, I'm sure the crowd is a big part of wrestling. They make it because they really get into it, and they, they you know, the, the good and the bad, and they have their favorite uh, uh, performers. I want to say performers, but wrestlers. Um how was the Japanese crowds compared to others? Weird. Absolutely. <laughs> it's it eerie because they wouldn't say anything out of respect. So they would just sit there and watch. They wouldn't cheer. They wouldn't boo. They wouldn't applaud. No the, atmosphere? There was no atmosphere. So you'd sit there in, uh, in Budokan Hall with 12,000 people, and you would have not a sound if oh. they were enjoying the match. But it's a matter of respect for them. Now when WWE goes over there, they've seen uh, WWE television now mm -hmm. so long, they're, they're more like American fans. But back in the early 90s, they, it was weird. You'd walk out there and you would hear nothing. Huh. It's like wrestling in a gym. So, so, so you kind of went on the circuit. You went around the world. You're in Japan. You're in Europe. 
you come back to the U.S., I would imagine, at some point. What, what point did it really start to take off for you? Uh, in 95, I was wrestling uh, in Europe, mm. and I had started making some headway over there. I had gotten a little bit lucky with the confluence uh, of events. I was in a riot in uh, Vienna. I almost got stabbed. A bit Finley, a, <laughs> oh, a, a Northern, Northern Irish wrestler, saved my, literally saved my life. A lot of people saved my life. He saved me from getting a knife stuck in my back. Oh, my God. And because of that publicity, uh, I started getting bigger and bigger in Europe. Uh, and getting some opportunities there working for Otto Vance. And somehow the mm-hmm. WWE heard of me and asked me to come back through in 1995 in December and I signed with WWE in December, and it, and it took a while. It took a while mm. to kind of learn the system. I was a little bit overwhelmed at first. You know, I've been wrestling in, you know, carnivals around right, Europe. Right. And all of a sudden now I'm at WrestleMania seeing Shawn Michaels uh, WrestleMania, I think 11 it was, I think, or 12, yeah. repel from the ceiling in the Anaheim Pond. Oh, my 60-minute match with Bret Hart. It was the most oh. magnificent. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't belong here. <laughs> <laughs> I belong a lot of places. Here is not one of them. And I saw I was overwhelmed, and it, it kind of ate me up a little bit. And fortunately, Vince McMahon was patient with me, and Bruce yeah. Pritchard at the time, who was running creative uh, with some others, and let me kind of evolve. And it, it took a while. And and Vince McMahon, what a character this this guy is. I mean, how was he with you? Awesome. I love Vince. I think yeah. he's one of the best individuals in the world. Incredible you, promoter. Incredible promoter. I'll tell you an interesting story. I ran a charity uh, golf tournament one time, and Vince mm. told me, he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, because he was playing an evil owner on television at the time. Yeah. He said, I'm going to double whatever you make. I'm going to fly all the guys down. He goes, just don't tell anybody I did it. You take credit for it. Oh, wow. wow. That's the kind of guy Vince wow. is. He's, he's a terrific human being. Yeah. And business was terrible in 95. I thought I'd missed it. This was after Hulk Hogan. This was after the yep. Ultimate Warrior. This was a real fall in the business. It was, We couldn't give away tickets. It was awful. Weren't making any money. And then all of a sudden, Stone Cold Steve Austin gets hot as fire. And then the rock. Why is that? How did that happen? It just happened. It was crazy. Uh, we were in Milwaukee, yeah. and St- Steve was wrestling uh, Jake Roberts, who had gone on the religious circuit, was preaching and doing all this stuff. And Steve <laughs> didn't really like that. And after the match, where Steve won King of the Ring, which he wasn't even supposed to win, and some other things that happened that mm. he did. Uh, he says, you read your Bible, John 3.16. You should have read Austin 3.16, which says, I just kicked your ass. <laughs> and the place went nuts. So did Vince McMahon, by the way. Vince said, you can't do that. He goes, what, the, what is wrong with you? <laughs> the next day we show up, the place is packed. Everybody's got an Austin 3.16 sign. And oh, business boy. went from nothing to Boom. we sold out anything you put Steve's name on, we sold out. Well, So you said he wasn't supposed to win. So that makes me ask, how much of it? is scripted and how much of it changes on the fly back in the day things would change a lot nowadays i'm sure nothing does it's all, all about right. hollywood you know it's, there's too much money involved steve wasn't supposed to win because but there was another gentleman that, was, that they, they were going to push to that level uh who got a little hot water and so steve got into his <laughs> spot so it wasn't like steve wasn't supposed to beat mm-hmm. jake steve okay. was but Steve wasn't supposed to be the guy that won King of the Ring that year. It was just kind of lucky that it happened. And it's lucky that it happened against Jake Roberts and you had this Austin 316 mm-hmm. because after that, there was nothing we didn't sell out. It was in, it was an insane time. Mm-hmm. We were making no money to making more money than I ever made in my life. Wow. I, one thing I've always been fascinated by is, is it's a, I mean, obviously it's very physical because it's wrestling, but you guys standing up on the ropes, you're flying around. 
I mean, there's got to be a lot of injuries. A lot of it, I understand, is choreographed. But at the same time, it's not like you're not doing these things. You are doing them. Yeah, we work in the round. And so we have a person sitting right there at ringside. We wish we could do it like Hollywood does, where you stop a camera, you reshoot, you move (laughs) angles, you do stuff like that, and nobody gets touched. That's not possible. We're working in front of 70,000 people sometime, and sometimes they're two feet away. Mm. So a lot of things hit. A lot of things land. Fake is not the correct word. Scripted. Could be the correct word, but yeah. fake, fake is certainly but not. The physical punishment is what I'm trying to get at. I mean, I mean, when you've had a match, you go back to the dressing room. Are you in pain? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. The older I got, the more it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've had I think 13 major surgeries. I've had a broken back, a oh. torn bicep. Uh, I've had a lot of lot of injuries. And that was from in fight. That's small. All from things in the ring. Yeah. So so. Everyone always says, oh, well, a lot of that's fake. They're not really knocking each other out and stuff like that. It's not like UFC. How much of it is real contact that will actually hurt? And how much of it is You know, I don't know, a, per- I don't know a percentage. Uh, but I-, I can tell you now, they've taken out a lot of things that for us that normally happen. We get hit over the head with chairs. We get hit over the head <laughs> with all kinds of stuff. They don't allow head blows anymore because of concussions. <laughs> you know, we had yeah. no idea concussions were so bad. You know, and right. so yeah. it's not WWE's fault. It's not it wasn't NFL's fault back in the nineteen yeah. eighties right. that these guys they didn't know. You know, I may soon be hunting Easter eggs I just hit. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but if they do, it's my fault. It's not anybody else's. But Man. they they've changed a lot of these yeah. things for the wrestler's safety. Yeah. Which is good. And now they have a drug te- they have a drug testing policy, they have a complete wellness policy, they have all of this concussion testing. I mean, they're really leading edge right now in mm-hmm. sports WWE. Well, how how much how much PEDs or steroids or whatever you want to call them was how much of it was around when you were there? Because now it's pretty clean. Now it's, as far as I know, it's clean, completely clean. Yeah. Uh, when I started, it was the Wild West. I mean, it, mm. it was, the, and, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it was the uh, same with football, same with baseball. Yeah. I mean, there were drugs everywhere, not just PEDs. There were drugs everywhere. I mean, guys, <laughs> there was, it was a wild, wild time. And Vince McMahon was one of the first ones that came along and started testing for cocaine and pills. Mm-hmm. Uh, which really helped clean up the industry. Interesting. And then later started testing for uh, PEDs, way before, uh, certainly before baseball did. So you're earning more money than you've ever earned before when it's really taking off. How long did that last, and how long did you wrestle for before you said, I can't do this anymore? Till about 2005. I made it to about 2002 and had a pretty good run during that entire, what they mm-hmm. call in wrestling, the Attitude Era with Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, The Undertaker. We had selling out arenas all over the world. I had torn a bicep, had a hernia. I really thought I was retired, and they needed somebody to step in the ring against Eddie Guerrero within about six weeks uh, in the Staples Center. Mm. And they asked me if I could do it. And so I cut my hair, changed my whole look, changed everything, became Wall Street JBL as compared to this (laughs) beer-drinking Bradshaw from Texas. (laughs) <laughs> and Eddie and I went, and at first it wasn't working at all. We we put uh, gave his mother a heart attack in El Paso on Mother's Day, oh. his uh, hometown. Oh. And uh, after that, we uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually needed a police escort to get out of El Paso because of that. It was one of the crazy. It's like a badge events. of honor, though, really, in the, some respects. That's right. Eddie, we weren't we weren't selling any tickets. We weren't doing anything. Nobody cared about me. No, everybody cared about Eddie. He was the most popular te- right. popular Latino star probably of all time. Nobody cared about me. And Eddie came. We're good friends. And he yeah. came to me. He goes, "I got an idea." I say, "He goes, <laughs> we're going to give Mom a heart attack on Mother's Day in El Paso, where his father is a legend." So after the match, Eddie's mother fakes this heart attack. Oh they, God! They get her out of the ambulance. Mom's in the, on it. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> oh my God! The place, she went down like a sack of potatoes. I'm <laughs> standing from two feet away from her, and I thought she'd had a heart attack. It, it looked, she was it, good. It looked it, unbelievable, and the place got 
Eer- oh. eerily quiet. And after that, people wanted to kill me. I had to, <laughs> I had to have extra security. The police gave me an escort all the way out of town. They thought I'd be killed. Can you ever go back? Have they you ever told gone me not back? To. I've gone back one time. And, and Well, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, now, about uh, four weeks later, we set an attendance record at the Staples Center. So wow. I held the attendance record at the Staples Center, the Lakers, and everybody, yeah. uh, me and Eddie Guerrero held it. Uh, a couple years later, unfortunately, Eddie passed away, and mm. I did the eulogy at his funeral. Mm. And then people realized that, we were actually good friends, and it was all part of the show. But that that brings up an interesting point. I mean, there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of trash talking. That's a big part of wrestling. You get in each other's face. Is any of the animosity real? Did you know wrestlers who really did not like another wrestler? Absolutely. And so I that don't know added how, some extra uh, spice. Oh yeah, guys would always you know hide a few extra barbs in the bag. You know, <laughs> to bring out on guys on national television. That was a lot of the fun back then. Yeah. There, back then things were very very loosely scripted at best, mm. and so guys just said almost whatever they wanted to. And there was some personal animosity between guys, and those were some really fun times. Were they intentionally pitted against each other? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Shawn oh, Michaels man. and, and uh, Bret Hart hated each other. And there's legendary stuff they said to each other on worldwide mm-hmm. television that was just about <laughs> as mean as you could get. Yeah, they got, in a, they got in a couple fights in the dressing room. Yeah, there was, uh, it, was oh, a, man. it was a wild time. It was a bit of the Wild West back then. So, okay, Sad. so let's let's move forward. And you're at the end of your career. Um, what do you want to do then? Do you want to go into commentating, you know, which would be a natural transition for many people who've been in the, in the sport? I had... I didn't want to retire. I didn't want to retire. I just got injured. I was right on top of my game. I'd been world champion for a long time, and all of a sudden I have to retire. Did not really want to, and yeah. so I was just kind of burned out. I just wanted to leave the business. Mm. So I took a job on Wall Street working as an investment banker. Uh, worked for and a few why years Wall there. Street? Was that always in your background, or did you just say, you know what, I think I can do that? No, I West Texas, where I grew up, is a wind capital of the world. Right. Uh, Sweetwater, Texas, Nolan County. And I'd put together a wind farm. I'd worked with an investment bank to do that. Had the turbines bought from GE. The renewable energy credit market imploded during that time, and we had to cancel the deal. Mm. So the, the investment bank then said, we love what you did. Would you come to work for us? So it just kind of came out of the blue. Incredible. Then I worked mm. for them all the way up to the – about 2008 when everything went dry with the recession. Yeah. Nobody could raise any money at that time except for Goldman Sachs. Right. And I had a chance to go back and be part of WWE. At that time, I, I wanted to go back. You know, it had been long yeah. enough that I, I'd, I'd kind of missed it and wanted to go back. Fascinating Then I went stuff. back and did commentary for them for, I don't know, four or five more years. until I. And how enjoyable was that? Because you obviously, I mean, you've been in the sport. You know it backwards. It's kind of fun to commentate, mm-hmm. right? It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun because you're part of the show. Yes, And you're helping storylines advance. And I really enjoyed it. And when I went back after a few years, I'd gotten removed enough where I could actually be a decent commentator. Yeah. You know, when I coached football in college, uh, I'm sorry, when I was playing the World League, I still wanted to play. I was too close to the game. Yeah. And I wasn't a good coach because of that. I I wasn't a good commentator when I first did it because I was still kind of wanting to be in the ring. After a few years, I had no desire to be in the ring. I was a much better commentator, and it was a very enjoyable time just to kind of sit there and be a fan yeah. like everybody else. As you say, be a part of it. That's right. Which is always fun. And the commentators, if you watch wrestling, they have a big part of it. They build it up. Oh, as yeah. you say, they add to the storyline and let the viewers understand what's going on. I mean, it's a big part of it. It's a big part of it. And and at, at times, it's different from play-by-play or yeah. a sports commentary because you don't want to be a step ahead. You want to be a step behind. You want to let the audience see it first. So you're not going, oh, I bet the Undertaker's coming out here. Uh-huh. You don't want to give that away. Yeah, you right. want them yeah. to see it and then <laughs> respond 
You know, at times people get on to you for that. Go like, what a dummy. He didn't see the Undertaker coming. <laughs> of course she did. But she wants the, the yes. fans to experience, yeah. enjoy it. Let them get it in their own mind. Is there yeah. a typical wrestling fan, John? I mean, you know, uh, do they come from all walks of life? I mean, I'm fascinated by it. As that. near as we can tell, especially with the women's movement right now, they just come from everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, everywhere. I, I've been with, uh, I was with a Wall Street executive one time, and he was literally <laughs> buying a... Um, company with Warren Buffett the next night and I said yeah. and he's a big Dusty Rhodes fan the American uh-huh. dream and I said well Dusty's gonna be there tomorrow at the Hall of Fame in Madison Square Garden do you want to go and he said oh my god I'd love to meet Dusty he goes I gotta do this thing with Warren Buffett <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> that's that's a loss so I sent him a picture with me and Dusty and he said oh I'm just here with Warren Buffett I got I'm gonna save that text forever but you know right. if you if you still if you go to these fights today yeah you still see people wearing shirts with oh, his yes. face all over it. Yeah. All over. And I mean, how many, what was that? At WrestleMania this year, sell out at the MetLife Stadium. What was that 80,000? The Jets and mm. the Giants don't even do that. Oh, God, no. They wish. And, and, the, <laughs> and the, the impressive thing, I thought it was going to be a lot of young people. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. most of the people were 25 and up. Yeah. Right? That's right. It's, it's a great show. And yeah. that's what it's mm. supposed to be it's entertainment. A, it's variety theater. So you have your hardcore wrestlers, you have your fantastic guys with the flamboyant costumes. You have your, your beautiful women, your athletic women, your, your guys who are uh, over the top, and your guys who are just basic guys. Yeah. Everything that you would want is there. And it's a basic of good versus evil. It's something That's people it understand is. very mm-hmm. well. Have you uh, wrestled in Mexico? I was just, as you were talking there, I was thinking of Jack Black in that movie. <laughs> Is it El, El Libre or, yeah. or s- something like that? It was a fascinating movie. You know, they put the masks on. And, and uh, I mean, is Mexico just its own kind of variety it's a of wrestling? completely different world, yeah. When yeah. I first started, I'd wrestle down in the border towns on the Mexico side of the yeah. Texas border and go down as far as Monterey working for a group there that was in the Northern Territory. Mm. And we'd wrestle, the fans would be behind Chicken Wire <laughs> in Nuevo Laredo. Uh, it was I, it was so bad. I would I'd be the only uh, gringo that was down there, the only white guy that was down there. And I, of course, I was the bad guy. Of course. And I, I literally would stop at a steak restaurant and pinch a knife because I couldn't take it through customs. And I put it in my bag and put the knife oh. in my hand. Never had to use it, but I always thought I was going to have to. I, Did they I throw things at you? Oh, they Pop. threw everything. You could throw little batteries. Uh, they'd throw it. Oh, now that sounds like, like English <laughs> soccer. They yeah, t- yeah. They'll yes. throw those at players in back in the day. I would have to wait in the dressing room sometimes. We used to wrestle the Plaza del Toros in Monterey, and I, they literally would put me in the dressing room where the bull had been butchered because oh, there was my. blood everywhere. You got to be oh, kidding me! <laughs> yeah, and I'd wait till the fans got too drunk and would leave. I'd wait till two or three o'clock in the morning because oh, they'd want to throw rocks at me or batteries or John, something. John, John, have I? I think we spoke recently, and you've been to Saudi Arabia, now the Middle East, a whole nother mm-hmm. different environment for sure, right? That's right. Uh, the, the prince there in Saudi Arabia is trying to open up Saudi yep. Arabia, and he wants to do it with as much Western things as he can bring in. How does and wrestling go down in, in a very conservative It's country. interesting, and I can't think of the Gulf state. I, I, think, it, I think it was UAE, could mm-hmm. be Dubai, but anyway, they were chanting in English, this is change, when they were seeing women in the ring wrestle. Wow. Oh, they uh, had women had the wrestlers. First time. And they haven't in Saudi Arabia yet. Uh-huh. They claim they claim that they're going to. Uh, uh-huh. From what I've read, I hadn't heard of that from WWE. Uh, but they have in the Gulf states had women wrestle there, and they were responded very well. 
Fascinating. So I, I'm. It's what a transition. You go from wrestling and all of these amazing experiences, and then into the conversation. And then you are on Wall Street. You're a Wall Street guy doing deals and appearing on Fox Business and 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 elsewhere a lot, giving your you know opinion and advice and where you see the markets and certain you know where the stocks are going. And also, you live in Bermuda. And often when you're on the show, you have this great picture behind you of this beautiful tropical paradise. I mean, what's it like living in Bermuda? I mean, that's another part of your life that must be terrific. It's been awesome. I went there in 2010 yeah. and kind of fell in love with the place. I started up a charity to work with at-risk kids, gang-type kids. Mm. I needed somebody to run it, so I stayed there for a couple of years and just enjoyed being there. And so I've been there ever since. I'm actually just now moving to D.C. to be a little bit more uh in the scene, because I'm trying to build a couple schools in different places around the world, and I, it's hard to do That's, from Bermuda. And how did you get involved in that, John? That's a terrific enterprise. I was in 2010. I was at the uh, football soccer World Cup down in uh, Cape Town. Yeah. Vuvuzelas. Yeah. Oh, God. I'd met, I can uh, still hear them in oh, my ears. It was Terrible. Worse. That was the worst thing ever. Yeah. And I'm sitting there trying to get them out of my ear. I met Nick Keller, who was the head of Beyond Sport. In fact, I'm giving an award at uh, Beyond Sport Awards yeah. tonight uh, downtown in Hudson Yards to some wonderful sports oh. for change charity programs around mm. the world. And I just met him randomly in a bar, uh, and he said, would you like to go to a shantytown tomorrow and visit this program that uses sport to get these kids out of the shantytown, to get them educated mm -hmm. and help them with job skills? And I said, that sounds fantastic. And I went down there and visited and just fell in love with it. That you know, There's so many groups doing incredible things around the globe. Mm -hmm. There was a group, Spirit of Soccer, that was actually crippling ISIS' ability to recruit because they put soccer, football infrastructure in refugee mm -hmm. camps in Syria and Iraq. Uh, Alberto Vollmer, uh, his brother Enrique, yeah. lives here in the city uh, down in Venezuela, the CEO of Asantre Saram. He's the one with the big, big hair, right? <laughs> Balma. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Alberto has started up a program in Venezuela and reduced his murder rate from around 85 per 100,000 to 12 per 100,000 in a decade. In, through sport. Through sport. Uh, in incredible. Venezuela, he's doing incredible things in prison. There's these groups that are doing, and that's what we're going to see tonight at Beyond Sport Awards, that's why yeah. I'm here, that are doing incredible things with sport can, around the globe. Can that be applied to the U.S., to inner it, cities here? It is. It is being applied, and it's being very done very well. I just asked to be on a board for Memphis Inner City Rugby. Memphis has the worst child poverty in the USA, yes. and this group, Shane Young and his guys, have started up this program. They've not only taken about a 60% dropout rate, they've taken it to 100%, with 100% being placed after high school, going wow. either to college uh, the army or the military, uh, the army, are a trade school. Wow! So how, the, the, how the, do they do that through sport? Through sport, it's just a matter of reaching these kids and having expectations that exceed what they had before. All right, and because, it's the team ethic. That's right. Working together for for a, a single goal. That's right, and that's what I did in Bermuda. I took a dropout rate from fifty percent to a hundred percent with our kids that's that incredible. we had there. It's a matter of expectations. We've had in our inner cities, in low income, in North America, and pretty much around the globe, a 50% dropout rate among inner city kids yeah. with the, the 50% that graduate at eighth grade reading levels. And that has, we've had every kind of education minister there is. We've had mm -hmm. every kind of education program there is. We've had all money thrown at this project. Mm -hmm. Nothing is working except for programs like these. Now, Wendy Kopp has done the same thing with Teach for America. She's done mm -hmm. incredible things, but it's a matter of giving these kids expectations. Give these ex kids expectations that you can pass this course. Mm. You may be at a fourth grade reading level, but you're going to graduate with a 12th grade reading level. Kids respond to that. That's incredible. So you're involved here in the U.S. Obviously, you mentioned Memphis, but you're doing it around the world still. I am. Well, I've got a project in Malawi. I'm going back down in November. 
Uh, we're building a project just north of La Long Way. It's probably the worst poverty in the world. Mm. It's only 2% uh, of that entire area. I has mean, when el- you say poor, how poor? Only 2% of the area has electricity. So only 9% of Malawi has electricity total. And we're at 2%. We're, we've got a bricklayer right now building our foundation. It's, we're paying him two pounds a day, about two and a half dollars a day. Oh. It's some of the worst. It's poverty that you couldn't believe. No. And we're building right in the middle of this, this seven-acre sports facility that we negotiated with village leaders, village heads, and a school to go with it. So we're going to take these kids. We're going to help with the adults with subsistence farming. Yep. Obviously help with HIV, AIDS, mm-hmm. malaria, uh, awareness and prevention, uh, job skills, but also education. And lots of sports, I would assume. Lots of sports. Would Absolutely. You, are you going to bring wrestling into these areas? I don't know. It's We don't have a wrestling coach is the problem. Yeah. I have rugby coaches, and I have basketball coaches. I'm visiting a great program down in uh, Zimbabwe when I go down there, Hoops for Hope, about mm-hmm. Ubuntu Matters. Um, in 2006, Celtics were big on that, yeah. uh, and we ended up winning a championship. So we have coaches for that. We don't have, we don't have for wrestling yet. Hmm. We're still working on right now putting the teachers together and all the coaches together and getting the facility built. We have 10 weeks till the rainy season, and we've got to get a lot of supplies on the facility before rainy season so we can complete it. I'm going back down in November to help. This is a, Obviously, this is a big passion for you, John. Is this where you see, as you look down the road now, you, you're doing your Wall Street thing? Um, is this your passion now? It's all I want to do. I love doing this. I love trying to break generational cycles mm. because so few people are able to do that. It's one of the hardest things in the world. You know, you go into an area that is poverty or you have problems, whatever at-risk kids are, that at-risk can manifest itself in different symptoms, and whatever brings that about is caused by generational cycles. Mm. So you go down to the Ninth Ward in, in New Orleans, and when the Hurricane Katrina exposed that, we realized we've got this terrible place here that's yeah. had money thrown at it that nothing's been done. Mm. Somewhere you got to break generational cycles, whether that's incarceration, gang membership, or illiteracy. And to do that, you have to have a different method to go in there. And that's what I'm I'm hoping to be able to build a model in uh, Malawi and help these guys in Memphis do the same thing. Well, that's absolutely remarkable. From football player to wrestler to commentator to Wall Street banker investor, and now you're a community builder helping people here and young kids here in the United States and around the world. It's absolutely tremendous. And I hope you come back and tell us how these projects are going, because I'd love to hear an update. Well, thank you. Our Malawi project, you know, like I say, we have 10 weeks to the rainy season. We, <laughs> hope, we hope to get it done, uh, not, at least all the the facility, the material on site by then. We yeah. hope to have our school and facility uh, up and running by next summer. Well, do these kids, when you help them, do they know who you are? Do they know that some you... do? There, there's a, there's a, a a school there called John C School. We have eleven schools. We have nine hundred kids in our program already in Malawi, uh, mm-hmm. and we have eight African countries that we have planned for these facilities. And I have several places in the United States that I've planned as well. Uh, they have a John C School, and they've renamed it John Cena School. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they know uh, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy that they these know. kids in some of the poorest areas in the world. Uh, yeah. Have, have somehow have the ability to keep up with WWE and, yeah. and, their, and their big fans. The reach of WWEs, it's almost incredible. unmatched. I was in the slums of uh, Mumbai uh, last year, working with a slum soccer and Magic Bus, uh, and same thing there. People were just excited. I saw Rey Mysterio shirts, and how <laughs> in the world did you get this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all over there. Well, 
you know, when I said at the beginning of this podcast, you're an interesting guy, I think by now people who are listening will say, my God, this guy's really <laughs> had a very full, uh, fulfilling uh, life up to now. And as I say, you've got many more great things ahead of you and you have to come back and update us on all these projects. Well, very thank inspiring. you very much. I appreciate it. I tell you, it's it's a dollar hosting a dime when I'm on the, when I'm on the <laughs> Ashley Webster show. You know, it's, just, it's a big treat for Aww. me. I get to come on Ashley's show and <laughs> hobnob, hobnob with the great <laughs> flattery will get you everywhere, I, exactly. Layfield, and you That's know why it. I do it. Keep it rolling. <laughs> Keep it rolling. And thanks, everybody, for joining us for this edition of the Ashley Webster Experience. So we'll see you back here next time. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.